Well, if you would, look with me in Philippians 1, verses 12 to 18. We saw last week the Apostle Paul prays this remarkable prayer and asks that the Lord would, would cause the Philippians to abound in love and knowledge and discernment. And here he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. I believe that this is a challenging text for us all. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would use the, the weak preacher to teach, rebuke, correct, and train in righteousness for the purposes of godliness and conformity to Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. On October the 23rd, 1998, 20 years ago this year, my grandmother died. She had been diagnosed with cancer seven weeks earlier. <clears throat> at the time, I was teaching the midweek Bible study at my church in Franklin, Tennessee. I was teaching through the book of Ephesians. I was so grief-stricken <clears throat> and anxious and, and, and sad and even mad by my grandmother's death that my pastor agreed to take the Bible study over for the next few weeks as I tried to come to terms with my grandmother's death. But it just so happened that the next text that was to be taught was Ephesians 4, verse 1. Now, in Ephesians 1 to 3, the Apostle Paul has laid out what God has done for us in Christ. Paul is never in a hurry to get to application. He, needs to, he wants us to recognize, first of all, the gospel. He wants us to understand who we are in Christ, what God has done for us in Christ, what our identity is in Christ. But then in chapter 4, verse 1, he makes this transitional statement. And he says, as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling. What that text showed me was that there's no vacation from walking worthy of the calling. I had not only a responsibility to continue to walk worthy, even in my angst, my, my sadness, my depression. I had not only the responsibility, I had the ability in Jesus Christ, by his spirit. Unless I be tempted to argue with the apostle Paul, he reminded me from that text that he was not writing from a, a study, a comfortable study or a country club. He was writing from a Roman prison where he would go on to write the prison epistles, Colossians, Ephesians, Philemon, and 
his letter to the Philippians. And so I decided to teach that night, albeit a very tearful Bible study. And as a side, that was the night I met Heather. And so that obstacle, the pain, was, was not uh, an obstacle for me. It ended up being a conduit in me meeting my wife and now having five kids as a process, or in the process. But he also showed me from Ephesians 4, verse 1, that Paul is not writing as a victim. He's not a victim to his circumstances. He's not in prison in Rome by an accident. In fact, though he was unjustly accused by the Jews and the Romans, he was not there as a, ultimately a prisoner to the Jews. He was not there as a prisoner of the Romans. He was a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord showed me that day that, that the Lord had him there. Jesus had him there by divine design. Now keep in mind, when Paul was carrying out his missionary efforts. His goal was to go to the major centers, the major cities, the major populated cities of the Roman Empire. It's not that he wasn't concerned about people in the rural areas, but he knew that if he could impact these highly populated centers, it would have a centrifugal effect. But the central place, the central place that he wanted to go was Rome. Rome was the most important city in the empire. There were a million people who lived in Rome. In Acts 19, for instance, it says, verse 21, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. That's where his heart's cry was, to go and preach the gospel in Rome. About five to seven years before Philippians, in fact, he writes to the Romans and he says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Well, it turns out that his desire was fulfilled, but not in the way that he anticipated. The record of this account can be seen in Acts 21, verse 17, all the way through the rest of the book of Acts. And it commences with Paul's unjust arrest at the temple in Jerusalem because the Jews believed he had defiled the temple by bringing in Gentiles. And the Romans believed they mistook him as an Egyptian who was on their most wanted list. And so he was arrested and he was to be sent to Rome in order to stand trial before Caesar as an imperial prisoner. Now in route, you can read this in Acts 27. They found themselves on this ship in the middle of a massive hurricane. And they shipwrecked. And they shipwrecked on this island called the Isle of Malta. And on that island, he got bit by a, a, a poisonous viper. And then had to remain on this island for three months before he could eventually find himself way, uh, to, uh, to Rome. And when he got to Rome... He was put in prison for two years as he awaited trial. And so Paul ended up as Rome, just as he had so desired. But not as a preacher, as a prisoner. And yet, as he's updating these 
Philippians on his situation, he's overcome with joy. How can that be? Because Paul recognizes and is fueled by the fact that God's providence is grounded in his promises and perfect purposes centered on his son, Jesus Christ. And that's how Paul views all of life. As William Cooper, the great hymn writer, wrote centuries earlier in a wonderful hymn, God moves in a mysterious way. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. Now, what does he mean by that? Don't seek to judge God's ways by your fallen reason. But trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence that is difficult circumstances. He hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Isn't that beautiful? And we see the sweetness of this flower at the very beginning of this passage as Paul speaks about the advance of the gospel through the frowning providence of unjust chains. Look with me in verse 12. He says, I want you to know, brothers, they were clearly concerned about what they've heard. And he says, I want you to know that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Again, he wrote this essentially the same time he wrote Ephesians 4 when he says that he was a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, from the Philippians angle, some 750 miles away, it may appear that because of Paul's imprisonment, his ministry has been thwarted. If God's hand is on Paul, why is he in jail? If the grace of God is on the Apostle Paul, why has he been imprisoned? He's the most faithful of us all. He's the committed one. He's the one most committed to missions. He's an apostle. How could he be in prison? But Paul says in effect that, you know, this frowning providence, God's frowning providence, it's a remarkable thing. Because although my gospel activity has been restricted... By these chains, it has actually resulted in a gospel explosion. That's what he's telling them. As he will write later in 2 Timothy 2, God's word cannot be chained. Isn't that a beautiful truth? Now, he wrote that when he was in the maritime prison later on and where he would be eventually put to death. Now, I find this to be an extremely encouraging and challenging passage. Because Paul was in a situation that you nor I would ever have chosen. And he would not have chosen it either. How do we know that? Because in verse 19, he is looking for deliverance. He's praying. He's asking them to pray for his deliverance. So he, he's not necessarily one who had, would have chosen chains for his present situation. And yet it was a situation that served to advance the gospel. 
God wants us to take the gospel into new arenas. And that may require God closing doors that we want to remain open. Or it may be that God keeps doors closed that we wished he would open. In fact, that's how Paul got to Philippi, right? Remember when he was seeking to go to Asia Minor on his second missionary journey? And it says the Spirit of the Lord forbid him to go two times in Acts chapter 16. We don't know how the Spirit did that, but he forbid Paul to go to Asia Minor. And then he had this vision from this man from Macedonia. He says, come and help us. And he ended up in Macedonia. And it changed the world. Things would have been completely different if he had not ended up in Philippi. Remember, he, the Spirit of the Lord opened up the heart of, of Lydia in Thyatira. A woman who, who now loved the gospel because God had opened her up to the gospel. And then you have the, the jailer there in Philippi who is converted because of Paul and Silas' witness. And so the world changed when he ended up in Europe. But now he sits imprisoned in Rome. Now the word imprisonment comes from a root word which literally means bonds that are made with chains. And he is chained. He's chained to these imperial guards. Now who are the imperial guards? There was about 9,000 of them. But they were the elite. You could say that they were the special forces of the Roman military. In fact, they were handpicked to be the personal bodyguards of the Caesar. In fact, historians tell us that they were very influential even to the Caesar. The Caesar took the counsel from these guys. They were very bright and they were very capable men. But one of their duties was to guard imperial Prisoners. And in this case, the Apostle Paul. And the way they guarded these prisoners was by chains. They would be chained to these imperial prisoners. And here, they find themselves chained to the Apostle Paul. And what did he do? He preached. Not to large crowds. That's what he envisioned when he desired to go to Rome. But he preached to the imperial guards. One guard at a time. Now, imagine as they're rotating these guards. And they tell us that they rotated these guards about every four to six hours. And so if that's the case, then he, he had somewhere between four to six guards that rotated in every 24 hours. And I can imagine every time a new guard was chained to Paul, Paul looked up and said, thank you, Lord. Here's another one. And for two years, 24 hours a day, 168 hours a week, Paul was only 18 inches away from the most influential soldiers in Rome. And he preached. In turn, the truth resounded in the imperial palace, in Caesar's household. A place that Paul could have never taken it himself. Remarkable providence. In fact, I want you to look at the end of chapter 4. 
I think the Apostle Paul writes this as a way of encouraging the Philippians. And in his little traditional greetings at the end, here's what he says. All the saints greet you. Verse 22. All the saints greet you, my brothers and sisters in Philippi, especially those of Caesar's household. Praise God for that. He'd been able to preach to these soldiers one at a time. We would have never envisioned that that was a strategic way to get the gospel. And yet now these soldiers are being converted and they're taking that gospel into a place Paul could have never preached. Now I want you to think about this. When Paul wrote to the Romans some five to seven years prior to Philippians, here's what he said in chapter 15, verse 20. I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. Not where Christ has already been named. That was his goal. To go where the gospel had not been preached before. And it turns out. He got to do that in Rome itself. And we should be encouraged by that. We worship the same God. We have the same gospel. No matter what hard situation you may find yourself in today. It can be used for gospel advance. There's no exception. Sometimes God has to put chains on his people, so to speak, to get them to accomplish his gospel purposes. I know that there are students here. They feel chained. I've met with you. You you have a full-time job. You're full-time students and people that have never been to... Bible college or seminary don't even know what kind of workload that you have, the kind of study that is required. And so you work all day, you go to school, you come home. Many of you have young families, young children, babies, and a wife that desperately needs your aid because she's been with the children all day. And then you have to study and you feel chained, so to speak. How about young mothers? Young mothers who, there's a sense of feeling chained to the home. You have infants and young children. Perhaps some of you are homeschooling. And life as you know it is no longer the reality of things. Sometimes it's a difficult job. Some of you are chained to an airplane. I know Keith Catchpole's having to be, travel a great deal in his job and But those chains can very well end up being for gospel advance. He's had opportunities on the road, even this week, to preach the gospel to a Russian Orthodox man. Or sometimes God's people are chained by physical affliction. Think about Seth and Emily. And their precious daughter Sage was born. How many opportunities for the gospel did they have and continue to have? I think about one of my favorite examples in history of Fanny Crosby. She was conflicted with blindness as an infant. And it gave her a singleness of focus. She wasn't distracted by worldly things. And through Braille, memorized virtually the entire Bible. Or a majority of the Bible. And ended up writing songs like Blessed Assurance. And to God be the glory. Sometimes it's literal chains. 
John Bunyan was a great preacher, a powerful and popular preacher in the 17th century England. And the Church of England did not like his preaching. They did not like his theology. A theology of grace, justification by faith. And so they had him arrested. And he was put in a prison in, in Bedford. My son Seth just got through reading a biography on John Bunyan. And in Bedford, in this prison, he preached. He preached to the prisoners. And the hundreds, it says, hundreds of people from Bedford would come and listen to him outside his prison cell. Well, the authorities learned what was going on, and they, they forbid him to preach. And they moved him back further into the cell so no one could hear him. What did John Bunyan do? He decided to write a book. And he wrote a book that has been translated in more than 200 languages and has never been out of print since the 1600s and has impacted millions upon millions of people with the gospel. The book was called Pilgrim's Progress. John Bunyan and the apostle Paul before him understood and lived the words of Joseph when he said, what man intended for evil, God meant for good. And in Paul's case, because of his imprisonment, not only was Caesar's household being impacted with the gospel, but believers in Rome were being impacted as well. Notice in verse 14, he says, And most of the brothers, having become more confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. The implication being, before Paul's arrest, they were not bold in their gospel witness. Now, why is that the case? Because in Rome, you had to demonstrate fidelity to Caesar first. And a gospel preacher doesn't preach that way. A true gospel preacher said there's only one Lord. There's only one master. And it's not Caesar. It is Christ Jesus, the Lord. So you can envision how sheepish they would have been to preach that message. And here Paul was willing to be imprisoned for it. And it was emboldening them. It reminds me of a story I read in David McCullough's book 1776. Uh, his account of the Revolutionary War. And he tells a story of a man named John Greenwood. Who was a 16 year old boy in that war. I can't even imagine 16 year olds fighting in war. But Greenwood couldn't even sleep. He was trembling constantly. He saw the fatalities. He saw the devastation of the war. And he was constantly trembling. He was fearful. And then one day he saw a man walking down the road. And here's his account. He was a Negro man. Wounded in the back of his neck. And I saw the wound quite plainly. And the blood running down his back. I asked him if it hurt him much. As he did not seem to mind it. He said no. That he was only get a plaster put on it. And he was meant to return to the battle. You cannot conceive what encouragement this immediately gave me. I began to feel brave and like a soldier from that moment. And fear never troubled me afterward during the whole war. And likewise, these Roman believers were seeing Paul's willingness to suffer for the gospel. And it was emboldening them, giving them courage to preach that gospel. And 2,000 years of believers have experienced the same thing. 
They have read about Paul's accounts. They've been emboldened by Paul's example. More bold to speak the gospel. In fact, had Paul not been arrested here, think about this. If Paul had never gone to prison, we'd be missing five books in the New Testament. During this imprisonment, he wrote four books. Colossians, Ephesians, Philemon, and Philippians. Later on, he would be imprisoned in Rome, where he would die. And there he wrote the book called 2 Timothy. Secondly, the church of Rome would have been impoverished. Because these brothers in Rome were now preaching in a manner they had never preached before. And then thirdly... Caesar's palace would have remained a den of idolatry had Paul not been arrested. Isn't that remarkable wisdom? Behind every frowning providence lies a smiling face. That's what Cowper wrote. But we see as well the advance of the gospel through the frowning providence of a divided church. Not that you ever want a divided church, but the point being made that not even a divided church can can thwart the purpose of the gospel. Notice in verse 15, some, he says, indeed, preach Christ from envy. Again, it appears that he's addressing an issue that was brought to him from the Philippians. They had been hearing about these men who were preaching out of envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Now, what is the gospel? We never want to assume the gospel. Some of you may be here today and you don't even know what the gospel is. It's amazing how often I will ask someone, what is the gospel? And they don't even know what the gospel is. So never take this for granted. The gospel is this. God is holy. God is righteous. And we are sinners. And we are unholy. And we are unrighteous. And we justly deserve his judgment. But God in his wisdom and grace has provided a way to judge our sin and save us, the sinner, through his substitute, Jesus Christ. Jesus comes as the substitute, the representative man, to do what you and I could not do. Fulfill all the terms of God's righteous law. And then Jesus went to the cross and paid our sin debt in full. He became our vicarious substitute. God's wrath, God's judgment was poured on the Son. And then God raised him from the dead, declaring the debt has been paid for everyone who will receive Christ and Christ alone. That's the gospel. And Paul was put there for the sake of that gospel. He says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. The preachers in Rome were of two kinds. There were those who supported Paul and those who did not. Now, why did they not support Paul? text doesn't tell us. I think the reason it doesn't tell us is because if it's too specific, we couldn't apply it to our present context. So in God's providence, we don't know. But we do know this. We know human nature. And we know that they were preaching out of jealousy and rivalry. The text tells us that. So it appears that because of Paul's status, because of his fruitfulness as a gospel preacher, there were those who were jealous of him. And 
Envy and jealousy have been perennial issues in Christ's church for 2,000 years. Now, yesterday, in our biblical counseling time, we learned that the heart of every issue is what? The heart. The heart of every issue is the heart. The issue is the heart. And what that means is, when I'm envious and when I'm jealous... The person I'm envious of and jealous of is not the problem. My heart is. God's just using that person to expose my problem. So it's a grace. It's a painful grace, but it's a grace that God has brought that person into your life to show you something about your heart. And what he is showing you about your heart is that you are looking to something or someone that's not Jesus for your fulfillment. And that someone or something is not coming through for you because the idols never come through for you, ever. And so out of that comes envy and jealousy, or for some people, just rage and bitterness and anger. And so it appears that idols were being exposed. Paul has come to Rome. There is great fruitfulness. There's notoriety of his ministry. And the preachers in Rome are jealous of him. And instead of doing a hard examination, they see him as the problem. And now that he's in prison, they're trying to take advantage of that. Paul cannot be all that. Look at him. He's in prison. We're outside of prison. We haven't been arrested. And they were trying to take advantage of that time by building a name for themselves. That appears to be the case. But I want you to keep something else in mind here as well. These aren't even false teachers. These were gospel preachers. If they had been false teachers, Paul would have written something like he wrote in Galatians 1, where he says, there are some who want to trouble you, who distort the gospel of Jesus Christ. But if I or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let them be anathema. But here he doesn't say that. He says, let them preach. Let them keep preaching. And so these guys were not anti-Christ. They were anti-Paul. But that does remind us that we can preach right doctrine with wrong motives, can't we? And we know that when we start having these sinister emotions come to the top, rise to the surface. And Paul isn't saying that motives don't matter. And he's not saying it doesn't matter if they don't love him. His point is, he's so concerned with Jesus' name, Jesus' reputation, Jesus' gospel, that how he is being treated is of secondary importance. Man, I want to be like that. And I'm not like that. I'm not like Paul. And when I read this, the Spirit is saying, you aren't like Paul and you need to repent. You need to reorient yourself to the gospel so that you can love the gospel like Paul. So this isn't just something descriptive for us. This is intended to rebuke us and correct us and to train us in righteousness. Maybe there are people in your world. Or maybe there are people in this church. That you question their motives. Why do they get in everything? Why do they do this? And why do they do that? But here's my question. Are they professing Christ? Are they sound in their doctrine? 
Are they confessors of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are they brothers? Then we need to be like Paul and learn to live with them and love them. That's why Paul prays what he prayed just prior to this. Abounding in love with knowledge and discernment. And this knowledge that Paul had was centered on the reality that God had worked out his divine purpose in history through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that by his spirit, this purpose was being worked out through the church into the entire world. And Paul sees everything by that big picture. That's the lens by which he sees reality. Is the gospel going forth? Praise God, it's not about me. They can be all upset at me and they can talk bad about me and they can misrepresent me. They can hate me. They can be jealous of me. It's not about me. That's where I want to be. Undeniably, the cross and the resurrection is what helps us make sense of all of God's frowning providences. I mean, think about this. The purposes of the cross were not revealed Until Jesus was raised from the grave. When he was put in that tomb. All was lost and hopeless to the people. The most frowning of all frowning providences. Was the cross. Because that was the only day in the history of the world. That bad things happened to good people. Because he's the only one that we could ever say is good. In the truest sense. The most frowning of providences was the cross. And it was not revealed the purpose until he was raised from the grave. And when he was raised from the grave, it was demonstrated that God can take the most frowning of providences and bring about the highest good. And what is the highest good? The redemption of sinners. The reclamation of a broken world. Restoration of the world. And here's the point. If he can take the most frowning of providences which is the cross, and bring about the highest good, he can take the lesser frowning providences that we all experience on a daily and weekly basis, and he can bring about beautiful and glorious purposes through it. We see that even in Paul's imprisonment, don't we? But keep this in mind. Paul's fuel for rejoicing wasn't just in believing Romans 8.28. All things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He certainly believed that. He wrote it. But it wasn't just that. His fuel was a person. Didn't we see that two weeks ago? When he says, I yearn for you with the very affections of Jesus Christ. We saw that the the very affections of Christ were being communicated through this human vessel. Christ's life was being lived through Paul by the Spirit. That's the Christian life. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so his fuel was a person. It wasn't turning over a, a new leaf. It wasn't resolving to be stronger. Reminds me of John 4, where Jesus said, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. 
the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up. Don't you love that? A spring of water. What is that water? It is Christ himself welling up in the person. And this spring of water that welled up in Christ or Paul is what sustained him and fueled him and moved him to live his life with one ultimate obsession. The glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. A student of mine from California told me this week. Some of you guys from California might know about this place. Coachella Valley. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Coachella Valley. Now what's remarkable about Coachella Valley is that it's the hub for one of the most um, concentrated places for golf courses in the country. 124 golf courses in Coachella Valley. Now why? Because it is plush green. It is plush green in Coachella Valley. But what's ironic is that Coachella Valley is situated in a desert. Palm desert. So how can you have this green valley in the midst of a desert? Well, there are wells that are as long and deep as the height of the Empire State Building. Below those greens, below the surface in Coachella Valley. Springs of water rising up to nourish what would otherwise be a desert. And Paul is writing from a desert, if you will. He's in a prison. I mean, can you imagine? No privacy ever. Chained 18 inches from a soldier for two years. He's in a desert. But his joy fruit is as ripe as it could possibly be because of the spring that wells up in him. And that spring is a person. See, he writes in chapter 1, verse 11, filled with the fruit of all righteousness through Jesus Christ our Lord. And as a result, not only is his desert situation not an obstacle. It's a conduit for the gospel. And some of you are in desert situations right now. Some of you feel chained to your circumstances. And you worship the same Christ that Paul worships. You are united to the same Christ that Paul is united to. And when that spring of water nourishes you and fuels you. No matter what your situation, Paul is giving us permission here to bear fruit. And one of the means by which we drink from that well, from that spring, is the Lord's table. What a remarkable day to observe the table in a text like this. Because the one thing we see in this text is Paul rejoicing in the midst of a desert. And in a very real way, all of us are in a desert. Because this isn't our home. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are in a broken, dry place, this world. Yes, we are heirs to 
the first fruits of heaven, the Holy Spirit, who produces the fruit in us. But we are pilgrims in a desert. And yet we have this spring like the Coachella Valley, which is a person who wells up in us, that gives us capacity to love, capacity to, to have joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control in the most difficult of circumstances. Whether it's a difficult marriage, a difficult job, or a health crisis, or you've lost your life's mate. But remember, the Spirit uses means. And one of the central means He uses is the Lord's table. And so as we come to the table today, some of you are visiting with us, and we would invite you to participate with us because we recognize that this is not the table of the Southern Baptist Convention. It's not the table of Fisherville Baptist Church. It's the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, even in Scripture, it tells us that we're to, to examine ourselves before we partake. That's very clear from Paul's writings in Corinthians. And so, before we partake of this table, I want us to just ask the Lord, by His Spirit, to show us perhaps areas of our life that we need to reorient back to Christ and, and His Lordship. So let's bow our heads and ask the Lord to prepare our hearts. If you